1: I'm so happy to talk with Elle Hardy. She just come out with a really good book. I'm about three quarters of the way through it. It's called Beyond Belief, How Pentecostal Christianity is Taking Over the World. So welcome to Mindship Podcast.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So I've really enjoyed your book and it took me back to when I was in seminary. We studied you know pneumatology, which is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And I remember going through some of the stuff you talk about in the book. We talked about the Toronto blessing and I was like, "Okay, okay, I see where you're going. I'm fascinated by the history of it, though. Maybe we should start there. Who are the kind of seminal figures that started this movement uh, in what is it around the turn of the century, somewhere around there?
0: Yeah, very much so. so. So I think it's important to really see the Pentecostal movement as coming out of that 19th century America frontier culture. So it really was, you know, when um, especially during and after the Civil War, where you know people were were making do with, with what they had, and and you know itinerant priests were kind of wandering the country, and people were going through terrible hardships, and and you know a a, a local minister, you know, an itinerant minister coming up and maybe offering you some healing or something um, was was quite a powerful thing, and um, and there was also that that really uniquely American rugged individualism. You know, there's a lot of stuff that you can trace back to to your Waldos and and all that kind of stuff um, that that I think really shows through the religion and and you know just kind of dominates the world that we live in. Uh, but but yeah, basically in the book I I look at three key figures who I think really brought Pentecostalism into you know sort of forming it into its its own movement and to what it is today. So so I start with Charles Fox Parham. So he was a, a renegade Methodist preacher in Kansas. And he um, apparently it is in his pomp, he could uh, clock 250 words a minute. Oh. And uh, <laughs> so he was pretty good at what he did. And he fell out with, with authorities pretty quickly. And he was interested in some ideas that were, that were certainly getting traction at the time that, that perhaps some of the more mainstream um, denominations weren't so thrilled with. So, so he was really, really invested in healing. And he and his son, his young son, had had, had some real sickness problems. And they, um, so, so he moved to um, Topeka, Kansas and started Bethel Healing Home. So, so to try and put all of this, you know, stuff into practice. Mm-hmm. And he also had a prayer study group and they were trying to bring on the Holy Spirit and this idea of speaking in tongues that, that is in the Bible. And it had really died out around the third century AD. Um, some monasteries did it. I think Catholics generally, especially in the Middle Ages, thought it was, you know, something that needed to be exercised. Um, some Orthodox uh, groups were doing it in monasteries. Uh, there were some hints that some um, German Presbyterians and some Scottish Presbyterians were involved in it a bit in, in the centuries leading up to um, to the 19th, but but it was something that was, you know, sort of seemed to be spoken of in hushed terms. And uh, he had this prayer group and, and he got them, you know, believing in, in the powers of the Holy Spirit and, and the powers of healing. And he obviously um, must have been, you know, been doing something for, for himself to have a following and they sort of had an all-night prayer vigil on um new year's eve uh, 2001 uh, 2001 1901.
1: i was <laughs> only 100 years off
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah what's 100 years were, yeah what's exactly and uh, and they were trying to to bring on um uh, the holy spirit and one of his followers uh angus osman uh began speaking in another tongue um, which they, they thought at the time was Chinese. Quickly learned, as a lot of early missionaries did, when they were, thought they were given the power of tongues to speak in foreign languages and, and go out and convert people. A lot of them died of dysentery and some pretty horrible things once they got uh-huh. to China and, and learned that they, you know, might not have spoken the language. Hmm. Uh, but, but back then they, they really thought they did, and, and Parham kept, kept praying for it himself, and he said he eventually fell into Swedish a few days later. Um, but, but the really key effects, it was sort of reported in local papers and things like that, but, you know, this is Kansas. It was, it was still pretty small then. Um, and, um, uh, he sort of started traveling around the area. So down into, you know, Oklahoma and Texas and places like that. And, um, and convincing people, you know, that this, this great thing had happened and he started to gain a bit of a following and he opened a, uh, a, a seminary school in Houston. And in 1905, he, you know, had a number of students, one of whom was William J. Seymour, and he was the son of, of freed black slaves from, from Louisiana. He'd wound up, uh, I think he was born in 1885. He wound up fleeing the South as a young man because it was getting pretty, pretty awful for, for emancipated black people. And, um, and I think importantly, he'd really grown up in um, Louisiana tradition, which was Catholic, but very African spiritual. And I think that that really becomes important in, in the Pentecostal story. Um, so he was sort of wandering around and, um, you know, working in factories, he was in Indianapolis, at some point he lost an eye due to smallpox. And he was a very, very pious man. And I think he'd converted to Methodism by by then. But he had, you know, he'd been numbing and ahhing about becoming a minister. And he saw this loss of his eyes as God's punishment for um, for taking his time and, and not heeding the call to, to ministry. So he wound up going to, to Houston and, and studying under Charles Fox Pyram and, and Charles Fox Pyram um, was not a nice dude. Um, he, was, he was very much a, well, should we say he was a man of his time. Uh, but he did, you know, he did accept this black preacher in. But the Jim, um, Jim Crow laws meant that William J. Seymour had to um, get his study out in the corridor. So all the white men sat mm. inside and William J. Seymour sat outside. Param certainly saw something in him. He was he was a gifted um Seymour was a gifted orator as well, and um and started taking him out on street corners and saying, Well, you know, you I'll preach to the whites, you preach to the blacks. Mm. And um, and and really saw something in Seymour. And Seymour obviously had a talent, and Seymour saw something in him. He, you know, believed in these um this power of the Holy Spirit that he was talking about. Um, so soon after that, Seymour got offered a job to to minister to a church in, in Los Angeles. So he went up there and quickly, you know, he's bent on theology, I suppose you'd call it. Um, he fell out with the congregation and they locked him out of the church. Uh, so he and a small group of friends and followers uh, were, were basically trying to do the same thing as, as Parham did, you know, bring on the Holy Spirit um, through fasting and prayer rituals. Uh, so a group of them did that. And and eventually, you know, there was an explosion one day in the congregation, uh, basically, and and the Holy Spirit moved and um, and it, it struck a lot of people there. But the interesting thing, The difference was and and why Seymour is generally credited as the founder of of Pentecostalism even though you know he's he's a black man in 1906 was newspapers it was Los Angeles you know it was a bustling city it was growing there were people from all over the the country and the world that were moving there um, you know for their opportunity it was the end of the frontier you know it was really seen as as an important place and you know there was some pretty big and, and awful newspapers there who were reporting every detail mm-hmm. in, in really salacious details. And, you know, it was classically Pentecostal. So it was, you know, people falling around and shaking and, um, you know, singing and whooping and stomping and frenetic and ecstatic and, and all those things you still associate with Pentecostals today. And then the other big thing that, that also happened, um, I, I think it was the, the, the day that it hit the newspapers. So it would have been a few days earlier, but that same day was the, the 1906 uh, San Francisco earthquake. Mm-hmm. And Pentecostals back then were very premillennial and um and you know real real proper end of days are coming types and and this was seen as a as a huge a huge thing so it just started people started coming from all over Los angeles and then all over the country all over the world to to see this congregation and seymour's congregational uh, re- revival uh lasted for about three years which is which is about as long as they tend to last you know the mm-hmm. the fire just kind of goes out a bit um but but yeah that was they were the yeah the, the real two early figures.
1: But that was the famous Azusa Street Revival that everybody talks about, right?
0: Yes, it was. Sorry, I forgot to name it. It's, um, it. it's one of the really funny things I learned during my travels. I mean, on my last day in America, when I was finishing writing the book, I was in Los Angeles and, and chatting to a really pious, young uh, Latino woman in Los Angeles, not uh, who goes to a con- congregation not far down from Azusa Street, and I asked her about it, and she, she's like, what? what what's that? <laughs> Never heard of it. <laughs> Never heard of William J. Seymour. You know, wow. besides Bible passages from and and but that's just how decentralized and, um, yeah, sort of almost the history of uh, Pentecostalism is, is foreign to so many of its, its adherents.
1: It really is. But then there's another real famous character in that, who is uh, Amy Semple McPherson. So you've got this really fascinating mix of African-Americans, sort of people of color in a poor, very downtrodden kind of area of Los Angeles. And then you've got Amy Semple McPherson. So you get a woman in there as well. So around the turn of the century, this is like incredible stuff, which is it's informed Pentecostalism even to this day, hasn't it? So what can you tell us about Amy Semple McPherson?
0: Yeah very much so sorry I'll just apologize to your listeners now I'm recovering from COVID so I might be coughing a little bit. No it's okay. (laughs) I won't be transmitting it to anyone through the screen. We're just
1: glad you're here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah so Amy Simple McPherson is is a fascinating character and she's such a um, so classically kind of Pentecostal you know fascinating, flawed, um, did some incredible things for people and you know enriched herself along the way you know she's just uh-huh. she, she's a real sort of proto-televangelist I suppose you'd say she really got going in the in the early 1920s and um she she took this sort of um you know initial strains of this movement which you know by then had sort of fanned out all across North America and and part and huge parts of the world you know people set sail pretty quickly for South Africa, Korea, China, all sorts of places and, and she was she was really yeah again just a, a product of that early Pentecostalism which was People from all different races sitting side by side. Women allowed to preach. You know, very working class. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, but she was sort of the product of a what I call a, a Salvation Army stage mom. She um, her, her mother was extremely ambitious, and they they sort of always had a, a very fraught relationship throughout her life. But she uh, she went out with a with a husband. She she married young, and um, they set sail for for China with a lot of early missionaries. And uh, and he died from from dysentery, more or less, once they hit land. Mm. So she came back home and, and married another. Uh, so that was her first husband, um, Semple. So, and so she came home and, and married McPherson and then um, found that she had a real talent for preaching herself. And she was involved um, with some people up in Chicago with um, in Zion City. And which was you know, basically I think someone called it a, a large scale securities fraud. Theocracy. Were, yeah, there were some really interesting figures. Valiva, uh, the the famous flat earther. And yeah, so there's a lot of stuff happening in Chicago there, which mm-hmm. I, I won't go into for now. But um, she was involved in that and discovered that she had a real talent for preaching. And she sort of set off on this, on, on an American sort of roadshow. But I guess she kind of packaged it up, I guess, made it a little bit more commercially viable, a little bit more palatable. You know, she learned she learnt a lot and learned quickly. And I think her mother, again, was that really towering influence. And they did things like, you know, started putting the people who are falling to the floor and shaking in an ecstasy into side tents and just making the whole experience a, a bit more, a bit more wholesome, you might say. Uh-huh. And she, she started the four square church, which, you know, is still strong in in many places. And she also, um, she might have been the first woman in the world to have her own radio channel. That's kind of in, in dispute, but she really got the the idea of packaging it up and making it a bit more consumer friendly and in using modern media techniques. She, she really mm-hmm. got that from the beginning, and, and she really helped take it to the masses, both in America and, and around the world.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, she had a few scandals of her own, as, as so many televangelists do now. Pentecostalism, as you say in the book, it is the fastest growing Christian denomination in the world, isn't it? It's exploding all over the world, which we'll get into because you traveled all over the place, and I'm fascinated to hear your sort of field research. But one of the things that strikes me is on the one hand, you've got sort of these theological distinctives. So you got things like speaking in tongues and healing, and then you've got this prosperity gospel, and that appeals to the poor, the working class, the people of color coming out of that sort of background. But you've also got women involved in there as well. So from the very beginning, you've got this just fascinating mix. And I think one of the people that you interviewed in your book said, "What people want now is they they don't want to just hear about God; they want an experience of God." And it seems to me that from the beginning the tongues and the miracles and the healings and all the things that supposedly were going on, that was a a much more immediate and accessible experience, wasn't it? Than sort of the dry mainstream Christianity of the day.
0: Yeah, as someone said to me in a favela in Rio, um, again, you know, sort of had no idea who who Seymour or any of these people were. Uh-huh. Um, but he, yes, because in, in Brazil, people are converting like wildfire from Catholicism. Um, I think it'll be in the next year or two that that it will probably, oh, no, sorry, it might be about 2030. They think that Pentecostals will overtake the number of Catholics in Brazil, but but Brazil might already be the most uh, Pentecostal nation on earth just, uh-huh. just by weight of population. But, but yeah, someone said to me in, in the favela, um, you know, the Catholics say you can have a good time in the next life the Pentecost say you can have a good time in this life and that is mm. hugely important you know it's again it's it's a religion of the working poor it's a yeah religion of minorities of of migrants of people feeling alienated in big cities um you know all, all sorts of all sorts of stories like that sort of repeat over and over again around the world and and that I think is 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 one of the most important factors in in why it's so popular and and why, you know, some people estimate there's about 35,000 people a day converting, which is which is a lot of
1: people. Mm, it could be alarming, depending on whose perspective you're <laughs> you're looking at. As a former evangelical, now I would be alarmed. But back in the day, I used to teach church growth and, and all those sorts of things. So I was thinking, well, as as I was reading through your book, okay, I can see how a church growth person could look at this book and say, yeah, what can we glean from this? to be able to plant churches that's the sort of language isn't it we've got to plant churches we've got to do this and that and yet when you go to different countries i mean so how many countries did you go to i know you you went to south america you went to south africa i think you went to south korea was it only countries that had the word south in the title because i was thinking <laughs> you just you don't like north is that oh you don't want to go to north korea for sure there's I've probably been not a lot them. of pentecostal churches in north korea but you travel you know all over the world, you're doing all this research, but yet each each place that you go to, it's kind of syncretistic, it's kind of got its own local flavor, but you can still see those distinctives, as you say, coming through from that American experience.
0: Very much so. Um, I, I actually have been to North Korea, <laughs> and i did oh, right. North Korean refugees in my book because uh, a lot of North Korean refugees in the South tend to convert. Um, I think I think we worked it out as I think I went to 12 countries and about uh-huh. six US states although I think it's actually more like eight but um some stuff I had to cut out so yeah basically what I tried to do I suppose in the book was um was, was trying to find sort of the key elements so you know healing um prosperity gospel that that idea of you know minorities and being alienated when I write about the British gypsy people conversion to Pentecostalism sort of making them a bit acceptable in modern Britain and And a lot of sort of quite strange ideas about existing in in modern society. So I I try to take those kind of ideas and just match them up um, to to the main centers of Pentecostalism around the world. So so South Korea, you know, told the story of North Korean migrants trying to make it there and, and how, you know, again, alienating big city. Pentecostalism is a very aspirational faith in a lot of these places and you know the, the journey of, of healing I um about that in South Africa and prosperity gospel in Brazil where it's it's still really big a really big thing in Brazil and and you know there's some really interesting evidence that it that it works um mm-hmm. that people tend to get their um get their lives together once they join a Pentecostal church and and I know that's a really big thing in South America is is addiction uh, you know men with alcohol problems specifically and and drug problems um if they join a, a pentecostal church it's it's the best route to to, to kicking the habit um uh, mm-hmm. better than any other um secular or, or other kind of treatment yeah, 12-step so, program yeah yeah yes yeah. something that's just joining pentecostal church you know because you build a community you have accountability networks all the kind of things that are important and and in a lot of these places you know it's only really a church that's providing those those solidarity networks and i, I think that's that's really important i mean the sort of overarching critique in my book is really just the the failure of a lot of modern states to provide this stuff is what's sending people into the arms of the church. And, and it's not a, a judgment call about whether going to church is a good or a bad thing. It's just saying that a lot of people, you know, the stories just keep replicating that they just, they need something in life. They need support networks. They're, they're in a big city. They're a single mom. They've got an addiction problem, whatever. And the church for so many people is is the only place that you can get that.
1: Mm-hmm. They can get that support network. As you say, we're not getting into the, theo- the theology of it as to whether or not that's down to the holy spirit or god working or is it just like you say a system that could be relevant to like a 12 step program you have that community you have that accountability you have that support you could kick drinking or drugs completely in a secular context so yeah is that the case i don't know but what did you find when you went to these different countries there's similarities but there's also some key differences what do you find like for example from south america to south africa Or uh, Nigeria, you went to some of these other countries. What did you see in terms of the differences between the local expression of Pentecostalism in these various countries?
0: For sure. So so one of the, uh, again, another key theme of my book is, I think part of the success of Pentecostalism is its decentralized nature. That it can look and sound like the, the local culture, and that that's really important to people, and it's really important again to making it relevant to their lives. Um, and yeah, you know, there's there's no pope, there's no archbishop of Canterbury. You know, it's mm-hmm. local preachers just giving people what they want. It's very, uh, very, very neoliberal. I, I kind of hate using that word, but it's it really fits into to the kind of into the modern world in that it's it's very much you know the customer's always right. We're in a marketplace of ideas. If someone doesn't like this preacher, they can get out and walk down the street and see another one, or mm-hmm. they can go online and find a guy that they like. So, so preachers in Pentecostal faith are, are really highly attuned to, to what people want. And and yeah, all, all around the world, it it's in some places it's it's really syncretic. In in South Africa, I I did a did a healing um ceremony with a well known prophet there. You know, it, it felt as though it would, would have been very similar to a traditional um uh, they're, they're Bantu peoples. Uh, he's from Zimbabwe originally. Something that you know, tra- a traditional African practice in a, in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. You know, with a bit of, with a bit of biblical stuff and speaking in tongues uh, o- over the top of that. And and again, um, you know, people go to these healing um, in traditional culture. They're called sag- sagomas. In um, Pentecostal, you know, they often call themselves prophets or something like that. And, and again, it's, you know, the failure of the state, this is often the only game in town for a lot of people. I mean, this is in in a city Johannesburg, but for a lot of people, you know, they can't afford to go to a doctor or, and, and the other thing is, I mean, it's speaking to their, you know, a lot of people's spiritual conception of the world, I think, um, especially, you know, growing up as a fairly secular person in, in the West, it's very hard. Sometimes you don't realize it's very stupid. (laughs) um, Just how spiritual the rest of the world is. You know, you tend to think that, oh, because you know, you know, America is the most powerful nation where that everywhere is going to be just like New York City or something. And and obviously it's not, but but just that that spiritual conception of the world is is the dominant is the dominant conception of the world. You know, pretty much mm-hmm. everywhere. Um all the cultures in Africa and Latin America, you know, will have have a much more spiritual conception. And and that speaks to people's understanding of the world in in Nigeria. Um where Pentecostals, you know, some of the, the mega church leaders are incredibly powerful there. They they essentially are kingmakers for, for the presidency. Mm-hmm. And that's very complex with the mix of, of Islamic and and Christian people in the country. Um, but, but, but they basically have a deal with, with whoever's prime minister and it's often a Muslim person is that yeah in order for um, for us to, to anoint you you know almost mm-hmm. as president you will speak about the world in spiritual terms conceptions of good and evil spiritual warfare is is something that people will openly use in in everyday political speech in nigeria and, and that's a that's a, you know at first i sort of thought oh that, that's it's almost a strange bargain you know they don't really mm-hmm, care yeah. if it's one of their guys so long as they're speaking these terms but obviously that's what gives them so much power and so much relevance so so they don't necessarily i mean president of nigeria it's it's a thankless task you know it's a it's a broken um, corrupt nation, you know, it's sort of three different cultures melded together. It's, it's, it's got so many problems, but yeah, if, if you can just get the, you know, the most powerful people in the country talking, talking in your language, um, that's, that's huge.
1: Mm -hmm. I found that so fascinating when you talked about Nigeria, as you say, so it's a country that comes out of colonialism. You've got a a Muslim culture and a Christian culture and a Catholic culture, I guess these three, and then you've got all tribalism welded into that somehow but then, I didn't know this, but you talk about, there's like Islamic, charismatic, whatever they call it, not a, not a mosque, but a temple, I guess you could say, where now they're starting to compete with the Pentecostals to attract people, you know, so what's that about? That's a, that's a whole other movement now in, in places like Nigeria.
0: Yeah, that that's fascinating. Um, so it is in a mo- in uh, it is in a mosque actually. Um, so it's called uh Nasfat. I, I won't try to pronounce the name, but that's that's the acronym. So so yeah, I mean Nigeria is just a fascinating place. Anyway, you know it'll be the the third most populous country in the world. Um, in a couple of decades, and it's really important. I think that the people. You know and get a better understanding of it like like we might have of china or india but but yeah it was um you know, you know it was it was i think there's about 250 different sort of uh, distinct tribal cultures in nigeria but they're generally divided into the three three different centers so where i wrote about this this group was in lagos which is not the capital but the biggest city and it's the biggest city in africa it's about 20 million people it's a sprawling mega city People from all over the continent, you know, go there to, to apply business, to chase their dreams or whatever. Um, you know, it's hugely corrupt with oil money, pretty poor infrastructure. And and this is where where basically the Yoruba people uh, live. And they've generally always been about 50-50 um, Islamic and Christian. And it was very common, you know, the, the streets aren't necessarily divided, but, you know, there aren't distinct um, Islamic and Christian neighbourhoods. A lot of people might grow up with a, a Muslim father and a Christian mother. And this is basically where where the movement of, of what we call charismatic or born again Islam come, comes out of. So a lot of people, you know, it was just quite quite normal if, if, if that's your upbringing, that on Friday you'll go to mosque with dad and on Sunday you'll go to church with mum. And what's happened is since, since the Pentecostals have really got going since the, since the 80s um, in, in Nigeria and, you know, this huge megachurches, has hundreds of thousands of people can go there at a time, flashy preachers, the lot, prosperity gospel, you know, health and wealth, all the, all the classic Pentecostal stuff. Since they really got going, they're attracting a lot of younger people. And, um, and, and again, you know, it just really fits into the story of Lagos. People might spend hours a day in traffic. So Pentecostal churches put on speed dating nights because if you're working all day and then, you know, three hours in traffic to and from work, you're never going to meet a partner. <laughs> so churches, are, again, just, just providing this infrastructure for, for people's lives and stepping in, you know, for, for you know due to the failures of the state. And, and, yeah, so it's these kind of things and, you know, the music and, and all that kind of stuff that started seeing a lot of people, you know, stop going to mosque on Friday with dad and maybe just go to church on Sunday. So NASFAT um, got together. They were... Uh, it, was, it was in the 90s so it was a group of um mm-hmm. one, one of the founders told me a group of elites came together which I felt funny it's like the, the only people in the world still using elite mm-hmm. in a positive sense um but but that's quite important to them because when people tend to think of Islam in Nigeria they think of Boko Haram and um and these guys do not want you know they're, they're trying to to show Islam in a far more positive light and so they came together and started this society um they get very upset when i've asked them you know are they borrowing from pentecostals and are they charismatic or born again they really don't like any any of that but um uh you know myself and other academics have have been there and seen it ourselves and Mm -hmm. it's it's pretty obvious what they're doing um (laughs) because one of one of the big things is that they um have started holding mosques on sundays uh, they hold their normal Salah prayers and you know on Friday, um, but but they'll start holding mosque at the same time as church on Sunday to try and get people going. And and I went in and you know had to go and sit in the ladies section. Traditional mosque, you know, everything covered up and headscarf, and they they gave me the book. And then you sort of see in in very front if you kind of squint in the men's section, and there are some TVs and imam in traditional white robes and and everything, but sort of running up and down the aisles doing you know praise allah praise allah um it's it's so really surreal. something <laughs> yeah. yeah and 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 they they're a bit in i mean um uh, the islamic faith have their um uh, the name escapes me for tithing but but they sort of have a um uh alms and and you know charity things that they encourage people to do it's sort of reverse of prosperity gospel it's basically said bad things happen to you if you don't give a certain amount of your money to charity and uh yeah but but they've they've kind of taken on a lot of these these practices to to try and stem stem the flow um no one knows exactly how many but but the head of the the muslim council in nigeria told me that he thinks they've lost about a million muslims to pentecostal churches in the Mm. last i don't know 10 or so years um so they're they're really concerned about it and and also that the pentecostals some of the some of the very prominent leaders are really starting to stoke up hatred and and violence against Muslim people.
1: Hmm. And this could be one of the downsides to missional work. You're wiping out a cultural element in another country. And you talk about reverse mission. This is another thing. I was a part of this because I used to teach at a Bible college up in Leeds for about, I don't know, five or six years. And all of my students there were from either Eritrea or Ethiopia. And this Mm. is fascinating because they were part of this, this movement called Reverse Missions, which is now you get like second and third generation Africans who were taught their theology by Western missionaries. Now they're looking at places like Britain and America, and they're saying they need the gospel more so than we do. So they're moving to places like the U.K., with a view to you know starting churches here, and what's fascinating to me was that on the one hand they're totally charismatic Pentecostal; they believe in tongues and healings and miracles and prophecies and all those things that you would associate with a charismatic and Pentecostal side, but yet their theology was extremely fundamentalist. You know, so there's this weird kind of mix of very rigid doctrine and dogma with this exuberant, over-the-top Pentecostal sort of worship and style. I don't know how you how do how do they reconcile all that.
0: Yeah, it's it's really fascinating phenomenon. Um, I'd I'd hope to get to um, Ethiopia because they're Pentecostalizing really quickly. I, I think the president, who's currently waging waging a pretty nasty war, I'm, I'm pretty uh. sure he's Pentecostal. But yeah, I wasn't able to get to to Ethiopia apart from from getting a flight through there for, for Nigeria just because of logistics and pandemic and everything. But yes, yeah, it's, it's a real phenomenon that we're seeing um, in, coming out of Africa, South Korea, and and parts of Latin America as well. It's this idea of reverse evangelism. So it's kind of like, a, you know, the West, generally the US and the UK, they say, you know, you, you guys brought us the good news. Um, and now look at you, you're letting gays get married. That's mm. the way gay marriage is the really big thing. Um, and, and just also generally, you know, kind of secular liberalism, you know, you'll find a lot of people in those countries, you know, quite pro-Trump, um, quite, uh, you know, might, might have an interest in Brexit or, and things like that. And, and yeah, they, they think that the West that brought them the good news has lost their way and, and they, they need to, to help, yeah, to, to re-evangelise those countries. Uh, in South Korea, it's been a really big thing since uh, 9-11 and since the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, there, there was quite an infamous incident where a, a huge like, busload of Korean missionaries were kidnapped in Afghanistan, I think. Because um, they kind of said to America, oh, no, 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 like you guys are too on the nose. If mm-hmm. we're going to, Americans can't go to those countries and spread the word. I mean, you'll just all get killed. And the Koreans have sort of said, we'll, we'll step up, we'll, we'll try the Middle yeah, East. For we can go. Yeah, so that's quite a powerful thing um, to to a lot of people who have that missionary zeal. Although, interestingly, I did speak to someone from from the biggest church in South Korea who said that they they did have some missionaries for a couple of decades in a Middle Eastern country. They wouldn't tell me which one. And they said after a couple of decades, the only person they converted was their maid.
1: Oh, right. Not (laughs) much success.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Very so difficult. i don't think it's
0: particularly successful but but i mean certainly for um for diaspora communities you know in places like london um where there's huge west african populations um for a lot of people i think maintaining their church ties is is really a way of, of maintaining the connection with their culture you know young a young nigerian kid that might be born and bred in london that's his way maybe you're still being able to connect with his grandparents back in lagos and things mm-hmm. like that so it's so it's often sort of a way of yeah, you, you can be anyone in London, um, but you can, you know, still yeah still connect to your roots and, by mm-hmm. going to church each week.
1: It's true. And I mean, it's kind of off the subject, but the students that I had, the, the problems that they were dealing with was, yeah, like you say, they've got second and third generation kids who were born in this country, and yet they don't necessarily even speak their languages that they brought with them, whatever language they spoke for in Africa. So they have started these churches and in the church, they don't speak English. So they're not even they're not going to attract their, let's say, their British neighbors, as it were, who don't speak their languages. So that's a real they're trying to work around all these logistical and you know, church growth problems. So, yeah, that's the that's the kind of dissertations my students were working on you know, at the time. How do we break out, but yet still preserve our own culture and yet reach out to the wider sort of British white culture? And I mean, Leeds and Bradford is a huge area for people from India, from Pakistan. I mean, so you've got all these mixes of of races coming together. So it's a fascinating thing to see how they'll work it out. When we return from the break with El Hardy, we're going to get into a subject that I've done a lot of work on the last couple of years. And that is, of course, the issue of Dominion Theology and specifically The last half of her book deals with this area of what's called the Seven Mountains Mandate Dominion Theology, which specifically seems to be sort of a subset within Dominion Theology in terms of the more charismatic, the more Pentecostal side of this belief system that's rapidly, well, it's the fastest growing Christian denomination in the world, isn't it? So, hope you've enjoyed the first half with Elle, and I think you're going to really get a lot out of the second half. As we get more into the issue, I suppose, of the more political aspects of Charismatic Pentecostal Christianity. I just wanted to let you know what's coming up here in the next few episodes here on Mindship Podcast. I've got some really fantastic guests lined up. In fact, tonight, as I'm doing this recording now, I'm talking to Andrew D, who reached out to me a few weeks ago. He's from the religiousaddicts.wordpress.com blog, and he wants to talk. I'm not sure if we're going to do a podcast, but that might end up happening. And then I've got a bunch of guests booked pretty much for the rest of the month. On the 10th of the month, I'm going to be talking to returning guest Rebecca Drumsta. She was on the podcast a while ago, maybe a year and a half, two years ago. She's just come out with a brand new book called When Family Hurts. And I was fortunate enough to be able to do a little um, endorsement for the book. So I really want to talk to Rebecca about that. And in fact, I think she's going to be our guest on the next monthly MindShift Zoom call. In fact, speaking of which, while I'm thinking about that, that's coming up here on the 9th of January. We've got... Jonathan Larson, who unfortunately wasn't able to make our December MindShift Zoom call due to a scheduling snafu, but Jonathan's booked back in, so he's going to be coming up just a couple days after this particular podcast drops here. So I'm going to have Rebecca coming in, I think, in the month of February. We're going to talk about her book. Then I've got another returning guest, Dr. Death, Terry Daniel, Dr. Terry Daniel. She's been on the podcast before. She is going to be putting together a conference this summer that I'm fortunate enough to be one of the speakers at alongside of some other guests like Seth Andrews. I was on his podcast a while ago. That is going to be a fantastic one. So Terry Daniel and I are going to talk about that. And then finally, on the 24th of January, I've got Dr. David Andre. And I'm really fascinated. I've been talking to him on Facebook, actually. I met up with him He's a good friend of Sherry Pallas, Dr. Sherry Pallas, the Fireside Creators, and he's one of the sort of main bloggers and writers on that show, and I've been interacting with him a lot. We have a lot of similarities, a lot of things in common coming out of both teaching theology in sort of a Bible college seminary setting. He has since deconstructed and writes a lot of posts, particularly on Facebook, on that Fireside Creators page. So if you want to look up some of his stuff, take a look at Dr. David Andres. So really good guest coming up. And then like i said we're going to have i think rebecca come back in in january or i should say february to be our guest on the mind shift zoom call that we do every month and then later this month in january we're going to be hosting our uh, first annual 2022 mind shift patrons only call this is another benefit that you get for being a patreon supporter of the show so thank you everyone who did support the show over the last couple years greatly appreciated the links to that are always in the show notes so if you want to become a patreon supporter you can make that your new year's resolution help me out And uh, help kind of meet my expenses so that would be greatly appreciated so let's get on back into the second half of this chat with L. Hardy as we get into this issue of seven mountains mandate dominion theology we're going to talk about Bethel Redding Bill and Benny Johnson some really bizarre stuff going on there so I hope you enjoy the second half of this chat as we get into this issue of beyond belief inside the rise of global Pentecostalism Now, there's another aspect to this whole discussion, and I love the I'd love to talk about the sociological aspects of it, but there's a dominionist piece to it as well, because you mentioned spiritual warfare. That's another distinctive of charismatic and Pentecostal theology. But in the States, and it's now spreading worldwide, isn't it? You've got this sort of charismatic arm of dominion theology, the Seven Mountains mandate dominion theology. How, how are you seeing that playing out, not just in America, but even in in a worldwide in Pentecostalism.
0: Yeah, it's, it's it's really interesting. So, so in in the book, I, I sort of try to chart, I suppose, the rise of the movement and explain, you know, those the sociological things we talked about as to to why they're getting so many people in the tent. Um, and a, a big part, a big thing I'm trying to do is not judge people for for their faith or whatever, and just sort of say, hey, this is going on, this is interesting. Um, but but the one thing that really does trouble me is is two doctrines that have really come out of the movement and that are, I'm finding. Are, are quite influential in the world at the moment so so there's spiritual warfare um we'll come back to that That that's certainly more of a global south thing i think um mm. yeah seven so, so mountain mandate so a, a few guys who were uh, involved in the Reagan administration and and just general '80s American Christianity, mm-hmm. um, ha- had this idea in uh, in 1975, and they it kind of laid dormant basically, and and a guy called Lance Walnall picked it up in I think 2011. He was a, he's an American, a, a Texas businessman, and uh, and and went back to to study theology at University of Phoenix, which I think you, you might have heard is that kind of dodgy. It's it really
1: a university? Yeah. Um, not exactly a mainstream what you think of when you think <laughs> wasn't Oxford or Cambridge exactly.
0: Yeah yeah it's not even your kind of local community college it's uh, <laughs> yeah. extremely for-profit shall we say. Right. <laughs> so yeah this is yeah Mike might give you a few clues as to the kind of guy he is. So he picked it up and co-authored a book with with Bill Johnson from Bethel Ministries in California who's a very influential uh leader who has somewhat distanced himself from it interestingly hmm. um and yeah so, so they co-authored the seven mountains mandate so it basically says that um there are seven mountains or spheres of society so it's you know, family religion military business the education arts, yeah, entertainment media, media.
1: entertainment I think yeah, go- government something. yeah
0: yeah, government, and that the modern believer needs to go out and conquer all of those areas. So it, it's a real call to arms and it's very, you can kind of see when you think about the time it came out around 2011, it's very Tea Party, and I think it's, and and it's very much you're seeing with the kind of MAGA today, which is almost, you know, re, reconstituted Tea Party. Folks, it's that, it's that very um, bottom up. It's very knowing that they've lost the demographic battle, knowing that they can't really win democratically anymore so it's just kind of like just fuck it grab your gun and go take over the local school board uh-huh. and tell them you're taking it back for god you know some people have been doing recently in colorado and some other places um it's it's a very um yeah it's it's a real call to arms and and you know there's um some people sort of influenced by by uh lance Wal- Walnow and uh andrew womack Mm-hmm. He's involved in a lot of uh, Liberty and cope brothers aligned projects and stuff in Texas. Those those are the two guys who are really pushing it. And, um, and, you know, there's a lot of, some people who, um, who did the January 6th insurrection uh, were inspired by them mm-hmm. and, and spoke about it. And they, you know, that, that was sort of a, an interesting army of lone wolves. You know, you had your QAnon guys dressing up and all that, but the guys who were theologically inspired seemed to really be inspired by this movement. And it's, mm-hmm yeah, Lance Walner really troubles me. He's, a, uh, don't know, he's, I don't know if creepy is the right word, but I've, I've watched a lot of him on Facebook, you know, he was doing nightly shows in the pandemic. So this is a very, this is a very American movement, but you can really, I could really see it in the pandemic, you know, spreading through Facebook, um, mm-hmm. you know, through, through people all over the world who are just kind of watching, stumbling on these broadcasts. And mm-hmm. um, he was, you can see that the, the idea of leading up to the election and, and after the election that the, he almost found the kind of violence, you can see the excitement in his eyes, he finds it titillating. And mm-hmm. he's kind of one of those guys that you go, I just got a vibe about you. Like you you, you find this thrilling. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And yeah, and so he's, he's really sort of been pushing it out and, and you're just seeing it um, more and more. So you're hearing guys like Charlie Kirk from Turning Points USA, that, that kind of campus activist group that I think they get a fair amount of co-brothers money as well. But he'll he'll make mentions of seven seven mountains or seven spheres, and mm-hmm. it's just one of those ideas that's kind of kind of percolating. But it's certainly inspiring people. And when people are doing some pretty awful things, they're you know they're just grabbing around for for whatever they can to hold on to to inspire and and, and justify what they're doing. And people are finding all sorts of things, and and a lot of people are finding the seven mountains mandate now.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned another major player in this uh, seven mountains mandate stuff, and that's David Barton. Of wall builders, I've done episodes on him before, and of course, he's a quote unquote historian. But he's it, a lot of this is tied to Christian nationalism as well, which is his big gambit, isn't it? Where he's pushing this sort of narrative that says America was a Christian nation, we were founded by expressly Christians to be a Christian nation, we've we've lost that now, we've got to go back to it. So, the means by which we could do that would be, as you say, the seven mountains, if we could just take. Control of these seven mountains of culture, the seven spheres of influence, we could Christianize America again. And he's got a massive following, and he's always on Kenneth Copeland's Believer's Voice of Victory. He gives tours in the Washington Capitol. He's obviously got his Wall Builders Organization. He's doing public homeschooling curriculum. I mean, this guy's like everywhere, and and they see his name just popping up. He was he was involved in Project Blitz, which you talk about in the book as well. So these guys are involved in all. They got their fingers in a lot of pies, don't they?
0: Yeah, and it's um, they, they all appear on each other's shows as well. So he's very closely involved with Andrew Womack and Lance known mm-hmm. well the Truth and Liberty Coalition. But yeah, I mean, Barton, used to, I think he was vice chair or vice president of the Texas uh GOP for yeah, a while. Yeah, he was very close to LinkedIn. Yeah, my friend uh Ann Nelson she wrote a great book called The Shadow Network and kind of trying to tie together all of these religious and right wing and and Koch brothers you know big money funded kind of groups and they they always you know the circle is pretty small in those things So
1: the yeah the same names it, pop up
0: yeah yeah they same all seem to it. speak
1: at each other's churches and you see people like cindy jacobs and lance wall now and it was big during the trump presidency wasn't it? the that evangelical advisory board a lot of the people on that board like paula white Kane, some of the other big names maldonado uh these guys were all part of that pentecostal charismatic movement which was all allied to that seven mountains dominion theology i think as well very much so and
0: i mean if you, if you look at trump um my, my friend dr david smith he's a professor in in u.s studies in, in sydney university he he did some some really good looking into this stuff early on and he he noticed that you know when that evangelical block that got behind trump really early you know when his candidacy was sort of a joke they were all pentecostal and I think that, um, that's really important it's that very anti-elite um movement. It's that, you know, it's what you feel, you know, it it all ties in so well. No, no one can tell me what to do. You know, it's all very independent. Um, mm-hmm. it's entrepreneurial. That whole thing, so yeah, it was the Pentecost was not necessarily just the evangelicals that got behind Trump early. And I think that is really significant. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean in, in terms of the Seven Mountain mandate, I mean it's it's yeah, it's it's just rebadge Christian Dominionism, however mm-hmm. you like to call it. But but yeah, I, I think it's it is really important that it's that it's coming through now. Because as I said, yeah, I think that they know that they've they've lost the, the demographic battle. America is a very blue country. It's just mm-hmm. gerrymandered, you know, that's gerrymandering and vote suppression is the only thing that's that's keeping the Republicans in it. And they're they they keenly aware of that. They they know it better than the Democrats do, you yeah. know.
1: <laughs> um yeah, and, well, and it's uh, fascinating yeah. too, because a lot of these so-called prophets and apostles, which is again part of that Pentecostal movement charismatic side. They were the ones that were predicting Trump was going to win re-election. They all prophesied that Trump was going to win, and it was a word from God and all the rest of it. Then when he didn't win, they went right into the big lie because, of course, they're they're vested in it. They couldn't be seen to, to have a false prophecy. You know That, that would be unbiblical to say that uh, if you predicted an event and it did not come to pass and you said God told you that was going to happen and it didn't happen, that is by definition a false prophecy that makes you a false prophet so of course they can the only thing they can do is double down and say well he he did win you know the the election was stolen and it's all going to be revealed and all the rest of it so you know this is all part and parcel of this sort of worldview isn't it
0: yeah very much so and i mean it, it seems that they they have fairly willing people i mean how long I, mean, I i suspect that in time you know it's just that they'll pivot you know pretty quickly mm. to if Trump doesn't run, you know, DeSantis, you know, is the, you know, the new Trump the or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, again, the thing is that it's just one of the real features of modern Pentecostals is how media savvy they are. And, and like I was saying, um, it's the same story Pentecostals and Charismatics around the world that they're just so good at picking up the zeitgeist you know, mm-hmm. and noticing. And I mean, you know, these guys like like Now and stuff, they're, they, they'd be getting most of their income through Facebook and things like that. So if the viewers are dropping off or if the viewers are spiking when they're talking about something, they will double down on that. Um, so to be really interesting, actually, I think to to watch them that they they in some ways will have a better sense of where things are going. I mean, certainly better than any bloody political consultant. Um, mm. But but you know if they start pivoting to something, an idea, it's probably because they're getting viewers for it. Um, so 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 in yeah. many ways that they've got their ear to the ground a lot more than, than most other people and yeah. seeing where they go next and, and the fact that I mean a lot of them are still um still very big on Trump. I think tells you that that that's still popular, still resonates. Mm. People are. You know, you're still getting eyeballs and you're still getting donations.
1: Mm. You mentioned Bill Johnson, Bethel Reading. What's fascinating, I've done a lot of research on what's going on in Bethel Reading, and it's fascinating because I see it as a cautionary tale. I think it's a case study what that church is doing to the town of Reading. You could mm. say, okay, they've distanced themselves from the Seven Mountains mandate, but they're in effect, they are making this all happen because they're in charge of businesses in the town. Mm. They're in charge of media, entertainment, education, politics, and all the rest of it. And people in Reading are almost afraid to speak out. This is what would happen if Christians were actually to take over. You've got these roving gangs of young guys, you know, going out and forcibly, you know, praying for people and trying to raise people from the dead. And there's been all this controversy in the town of Reading. I mean, to me, that's how I see it. I don't know. What's your take on Bethel Reading?
0: yeah that's a it's a creepy town actually it's um you know I've, I've lived in the deep south of america and been to some you know small towns where people don't like fake news media and stuff but you know they'll s- still have that gorgeous southern hospitality you know invite you in mm-hmm. and you're drinking with their mother on the front porch you know <laughs> while they're telling you how awful yeah, all the you stereotypes are, but, but, you know being being absolutely lovely about it yeah there, there was there's a real hostility in, in reading which which really quite puzzled me um very lucky having, you know, I've, I find Americans incredibly generous, kind, curious people, and having an Australian accent is is just an amazing passport. There, people always want to talk to you, and mm-hmm. but Reading, they don't. They they've you know a very much sense of you're an outsider and what are you doing here. And that's yeah, I mean that you know the chapter in the book I say it's a company town, and and the mm-hmm. company is, is Bethel yeah you know something like 11% of the population go to the church you know in a, in a in a town of about 90,000 people um they until recently they had the mayor they always tend to have someone on um, city council they um the, they they control the the board of commerce or I, can't think about I think it was yeah board of commerce um any philanthropic organization there they they've got ted talks into it they've got a you know an angel investing community to help small businesses and stuff Almost all the people there are Bethel. They've decided because Bill Johnson's wife Benny is quite new agey, shall we say, mm. um, in her beliefs on health, you know, rabidly anti-vax and all that kind of stuff. Um, even well before, you know, pandemic. And um, she decided that Beth, you know, that Reading was going to be a cancer-free zone. And um, so so they've got from what I can work out, they've they've got probably at least 25% of the of the hospital doctors in the, in the town, um, that Mm. are Bethel affiliated. They, they get, they meet people on conferences, you know, at Christian um, conferences that are doctors and they lure them to the town. So prayer groups from the church are allowed to go into the hospitals and pray and in waiting rooms and stuff. I spoke to some, some medical workers. And again, everyone's very wary of speaking out against the church because it just doesn't make your life worth it. You know, people talk about being harassed out of their jobs and stuff like that, for people that, that run a watchdog Facebook group, but, but yeah, they you know, hospital workers have told me, yeah, it's, you, you just get the, before COVID you get the emergency ward just flooded with people going around to pray on, on people. And it's not always with their consent.
1: Yeah. I've heard many stories about that. You mentioned that in the book, there was a woman, I think in a wheelchair that got accosted by a group of Bethelites, and she, so they said, if we want to pray for you. We're going to, you know, God's going to heal you. And she said, no, I do not want you to. And they just said, they just ignored her consent, and just forcibly. Didn't, I think they stopped her wheelchair, didn't they? Physically, they put like, their
0: feet yeah, yeah. under her wheelchair. And I mean, that is, that that's, that's you know, humiliating. That is, yeah. the, you a, know, you would never feel so powerless as to have exactly. that happen. And yeah, that was actually one of the founders of this Facebook Watchdog group was her daughter, and to this day, you know, I speak to her daughter who's, you know, sort of a, in her fifties, I would say, and she's still bubbling with rage about what they did to her mom. And and I think yeah. I would be the same if someone Righty. did that to so, my mom, I'd probably devote the rest of my life to,
1: yeah, to try to the take West them world. down. Yeah, Absolutely. I don't want to live in a world where there's a, well, to me, it's more like the cult psychology. I mean, I've studied Bethel Redding, to me, it's more like akin to some type of cult, more of a cultic movement than anything else, because it's just a bunch of devotees who are just absolutely sold on this vision of, you know, spiritual warfare and prayer and healing and miracles and everything else. And they believe that gold dust comes down from the, you know, the inside of the auditorium and feathers and it's all a miraculous, you know, revealing of God and the Holy Spirit. I mean, that to me sounds more like a cult than anything else. I don't know what your take on it is.
0: Um, yeah, I'm, f- I'm fairly wary of, of using cult stuff just because I think it's, it's still to me is an organized religion. I mean, I understand why why people get that. And I, I mean, I think definitely Bethel, I think the being, getting more corporately aware, shall we say, and trying to move away from a bit of the, the really crazy stuff officially, but they really soak it on the side, you know, through Benny, mm-hmm. Benny's Instagram is, is a journey, shall we yeah, say. Yeah, grave soaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that That's kind of a stuff. weird one. Yeah, Bill, Bill. Bill tries to very much be the you know be a, a very sensible frontman now, which is why they moved away from Seven Mountains stuff and that kind of thing. But they certainly let it happen on the sides. I mean, Sean Sean Foyt. F- F- I can't say his name. Um, the you know the blonde curly hair musician who goes around the country. Oh, Sean Foyt. Yeah, Foyt. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's the Anti-lockdown rallies. He's a Bethel guy, um, mm-hmm. but then they say you know oh, he, he he trained here, but he's not you know part of our church anymore.
1: Welcome, to Overdistancing the themselves, yeah,
0: yeah. Although recently, um, they actually uh, Bethel did a, a a kind of video cast trying to. I think they might have over-distanced themselves from Seven Mountains mandate. Right. So trying, you know, yeah. But I mean, I've spoken to their communications guy, and he's actually lovely, a really pious guy, really theologically smart. You know, seems to be one of those a lot of younger Pentecostals I find really do want to do good in the world. And they think that the church is, you know, the best way to do it. And, you know, especially in a lot of places in the global South, it is, it's the only place that can organize stuff, but yeah. So I think he's sort of tried to lead them away from some of the very fringe aspects. And I don't know if they're starting to feel like they've gone a bit too far because they're trying to come back and reclaim a bit of that stuff now. So Mm -hmm. it's very interesting to watch. Um, and I mean, they've all really studied the stuff that um, Wimber and Wagner were talking about with the routinization of churches. And, and I think they do get quite aware that if you, yeah, if you, if you standardize your worship too much, you will lose people. People want that spontaneous, miraculous. Mm-hmm. They want the fun stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so, so I don't know, but they're, they're kind of interesting me in the moment. I feel like, I don't know if there's a bit of a, an ideological struggle going on or again, if they're just, you know, if YouTube views are going down. And maybe gold dust is, you know, gets you YouTube used <laughs> up. Maybe you start the gold dust and the feathers again. I don't know. Start
1: the gold dust and the feathers. Yeah. Gold fillings or whatever it is that, you know, all sorts of crazy miracles they have. Well, listen, yeah. I, want, I don't want to keep you too long. I know you're still struggling with COVID. You've been <laughs> Sorry, coughing and throat. your throat's <laughs> getting dry. Your book is called Beyond Belief, How Pentecostal Christianity Has Taken Over the World. It's just come out, according to Amazon, on the 30th of November. So it's literally... Just now available, isn't it? You can get it on Amazon. Where else can you get the book?
0: Yeah, so it's just come out in the UK on the thirtieth. There's been some supply chain issues, so it's only really just getting into Waterstones and kind of all the stores now. Um, but it's certainly yeah on Amazon, or you can buy it through my publisher hearst or through an independent bookstore. Um, it's going coming out in Australia on the first of February. Uh, and it should be coming out sometime around mid-March, I think, in the U.S., again, uh, just dependent on supply chain issues because that's mm-hmm. affecting publishing. But yeah, it's, uh, if you just Google El Hardy Beyond Belief, you should be able to find it.
1: So just a quick question, then, if people wanted to get a hold of you on social media, what's the best place to find you?
0: Sure. Uh, I'm on Twitter at El Hardy, so E-double-L-E-H-A-R-D-Y. Yeah, and that's, that's my main social media. I'm, I'm on there far too much. A yeah. uh, unfortunately you'll see that i spend a ridiculous amount of my day posting
1: i know but social media is the way forward and it's the way to promote your work so i'm glad mm-hmm. i was able to get the word out a little bit about your book i've enjoyed reading it i've got about a quarter of it left i'm interested to see how you're going to bring it all to a conclusion so if people want to learn more about the spread of global pentecostalism this is a great resource so thank you l for taking the time out to chat with me
0: Cool, thanks for having me and yeah, apologies to my uh,
1: my voice. Not a problem. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thanks very much.